Hey guys, it is Jordan. Welcome to episode 33 of the Chocolate Croissants podcast. Uh, I need to talk to Matt and Justin and see how they do these intros because it's a lot of clicking and a lot of like type and computers. And anyway, um, I'm going to be honest, uh, this past week or so has been uh, unique and quite frankly, pretty rough uh, for both Matt Justin and myself uh, for different reasons, but we do have a lot in common when it comes to having significant uh, people in our lives being kind of sick, and it's made things difficult for all three of us for different reasons. Uh, Point being, I have not listened to episode 33, which Matt uh, had done on his tour bus over the past few days, Um. And I'm actually very interested in hearing it. He speaks very highly of it. He sent me some copy to share with you guys just to give you a heads up on today's episode. Uh, But I will be listening to it uh, as you guys consume it as well. So episode 33, it is with Matt's friend, Brandon Bateman, who has a very uh, impressive and varied background And I think it's best to let him share his story instead of me, someone who doesn't know him personally, share it with you guys. Uh, What's also very cool is that Jake Bowen from Periphery, who was episode 32's guest, is actually a co-host for this episode. So it's Matt and Jake and Brandon. Uh, But very briefly, uh, Matt shared this with me, Uh, saying that uh, Brandon, in this episode, he discusses his history in the military and most specifically his time in the field and how it shaped his views on how men and authoritative jobs in general are viewed in society today. Uh, And they also discuss the measure and expectations of a quote man in the context of the military and in the civilian world. Uh, And they also dig heavily into Brandon's work uh, where he spends much of his time hoping to educate law enforcement officers, EMTs, veterans, and other victims of trauma on how to cope with stress. So it sounds like we actually have uh, a bit in common as far as working with people in the world and helping them handle and deal with stress. Uh, But obviously Brandon's background and experience in the military is something that I have no uh, context or experience of personally, and I'm very interested to, to hear what he has to say. Uh, on this episode. Uh, also, very briefly, I want to share uh, some love with, uh, with our sponsor, Matta Tattoo. Did I say share some love, show some love? I don't know. It's been a week. Uh, anyway, Matta Tattoo. Uh, they've been very, very kind to us uh, for over a month now, sponsoring these episodes each week. Uh, I'm going to ask that you check them out. They do have a website. Uh, it is nat-a-tat and the number two.com. Uh, I know that's kind of difficult, but if you just check the episode description uh, in your podcast app or your web browser, uh, the, the accurate link is right there. So you don't have to think. Um, and right now, I don't really feel like doing much thinking. Um, anyway, Natatattoo, they've been really kind to us. Justin and Matt met the company founder, Christy, a few months ago at the Health Expo East when it was in Baltimore. Uh, They both speak very, very highly of her um, and the company in general. Um, And basically, uh, Christy had started a luxury bath products company uh, because she was hoping to take care of her kids who had sensitive skin. 
Um, and then as they got older, they started getting tattoos and Christy continued to want to help take care of their needs and thus Nata Tattoo and their products uh, became a thing. And Nata Tattoo also wants to take care of you all as well. So they are offering you, the listener of Chocolate Croissants, 25% off anything and everything in their web store, which is really, really kind and considerate of them. So all you got to do, go to their website, see what you want, go to checkout, and then in all caps, chocolate, and then the number's 25. Uh, so once you get to checkout, it's chocolate25, and that will give you 25% off their products in their web store. Um, as you've probably heard in prior episodes, uh, Matt has been using a lot of their products, um, and there's, there's a tattoo care kit, the Nata Tattoo Care Kit, that they uh, is, I guess, a feature product in their store. So Matt's been using um, cleanser, and lotion, and balm, all kinds of good stuff, and he has sensitive skin as well. Uh, and he has very uh, good things to say about the products and how much they've been helping both his skin, but also the tattoos on his skin. So again, uh, nat-a-tat2.com, uh, chocolate25 at checkout, and you get 25% off their products. Uh, okay, that's it. Let's get into episode 33 with Brandon Bateman. Uh, enjoy, and you will catch me on the backside of this episode with a final few words. Uh, much love to you all uh, for your attention and for your kindness, and uh, I will see you at the end of this episode and in the Facebook group. All right. Hey guys, Matt Halpern here, uh, once again coming to you from the back of the Periphery Tour Bus with episode 33 of the Chocolate Croissants podcast. Um, I actually have Jake Bowen with me again today as my co-pilot. Um, say hi, Jake. Hello. Um, Jake is back, and uh, I hope everybody who got a chance to check out episode episode 32 with Jake really enjoyed it. Um, the feedback we've been getting so far has been fantastic, and I know we touched on a lot of topics that um, seem to be very meaningful and helpful to a lot of you listeners. So um, if you've had a chance to check it out and you dug it, thanks again. If you haven't, please give yourself a chance to listen. Um, it's a little bit over an hour, and uh, and yeah, we talk about some really good stuff. Um, Jake is here with me today because our guest today uh, is a mutual friend of ours. Jake met this person back in 2008, and I met this person back in 2010. And when I met Brandon, uh, he was instantly just one of the most interesting people I'd ever met. And I felt like we sort of connected and bonded pretty quickly. Um, We became, I think, close friends uh, without ever being friends before and have had probably some of the, even today, like some of the most deep conversations that I've had with anybody. You know, sharing certain things with each other that we haven't really shared with, with many other people. And even when we haven't been together, Brandon is one of those people who will either call me or I'll call him and we'll just touch base on things. And it's I don't have many friends like that. So to, uh, to dig into this, our guest today is Mr. Brandon Bateman. I will let him share a little bit about himself and, and who he is and what his background is because I probably wouldn't do it any justice. But before we get into that, um, I just kind of want to pick up from where we left off last week because Brandon, you were just mentioning that you really liked Jake's episode, episode specifically one of his stories about standing up to a bully. Oh yeah. And if yeah. you're comfortable with telling a story. Sure, you yeah. Know. yeah. So first of all, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's you're welcome. I'm honored to be here. Um, my, my bully experience is actually this one time at band camp. 
So my freshman year at band camp, the upperclassmen were doing this deal in the quad where they would go around and uh, push the freshman and of course one would be on their hands and knees behind the person so that they trip and fall essentially. Me being the person I am, I, not I took very quick notice to this and decided that I'm just going to let them kind of come to me and see how it goes. So they did, naturally. They, they, they tried to come to me and they did. Uh, they set up behind me and the, the pusher came up to me. I timed it just right. He decided he would push. I grabbed his hands and actually pulled him down with me. It was a sacrificial drop. I knew I was going. Uh, all the while, the person on the ground rolled over onto his back. I then raised my foot up in the air and hammer kicked him in the groin as hard as I could. He cried uh, actively in front of the entire you know band there in, in the area. And it was from that moment on, everyone knew that uh, I was not one to mess with. Yeah, it's you're like the, the, the big dog in the prison. Basically, yeah, like pick the tough guy and, and beat the smack out of him. Right, yeah. <laughs> Which, in some of the situations you met, you've been in, I wonder how, how many times you've had to face a, a, that kind of experience, you know? Um, so, so that being said, maybe it's good that you give a little bit of background on yourself because, I mean, here's what I knew about you when I met you. I knew that you were a drummer who played with um, the Tony Danza tap dance extrav extravaganza, excuse me, that's a fucking mouthful, even no matter how many times I say it. <laughs> Um, you know, you played with Danza, and all I knew was that you were a Marine, but I didn't know anything else. I knew from meeting you that you had an extensive knowledge of really amazing books. You had a bookshelf that was like, you know, laid out in, I don't know if it was alphabetical order, but it was like the, you know, 20, 30, however many books that you believe to be the, mm. the most important books ever right. written. Um, but yeah, that's that's what I knew about you, and then I've learned so much more since then. So maybe the listeners would like to hear from you what I've learned. Yeah, sure. And so in that regard, I used to think that the my book. In fact, I think I gave you Jake a book to take that trip. I believe. Are you sure it was me? Because I would remember a gesture like that. I think maybe. Anyhow, uh, I used to think that on my bookcase was all one needed to know about life. Uh, but that's the thing about people who are interested in reading is they come to learn very quickly that that's, that's never the case. You know, your library can is ever expansive, and mine has been that indeed. Uh, so we were turned on in the Marine Corps to what's called the Commandant's Required Reading List. And so you were actually required to be spun up on a lot of industry-related reading, uh, everything from leadership to weapons and tactics to uh, you know just personal financial management. I mean, you name it. It's in there if it makes for a better Marine then it's on the required reading list. So that kind of started my path in, in I call it a uh, endless pursuit of knowledge, right? Uh, so yeah, I was, uh, actually I'll start before the Marine Corps. So I was in the Boy Scouts, I became an Eagle Scout. Uh, I was in the junior ROTC program in high school. I was in a, a youth auxiliary to the Marine Corps called uh, the Young Marines as well. So logic would dictate that the next step that when someone is of age is to join the Marine Corps. So I did. and. Uh, there's a bit of legacy there. My grandfather is also a Marine. He's a World War II veteran. So I, I was very clear. I think by the age of about 14, I had decided that I was going to be a Marine. So I really wanted two things. I wanted to be a Marine, and I wanted to get operational experience. Those were my first and foremost goals, sort of, in life. Uh, and I did that. And so I served uh, in the Marine Corps. I was uh, in the infantry. I served a total of eight years. Um, the last few years of that was what's called the Individual Ready Reserves, which is how I actually was able to tour with Danza. And my command was very supportive of that. In fact, a couple of them were fans of the band. So as long as I brought them swag, they, they didn't care. I, I could go out for as long as I wanted to, which was a pretty cool arrangement. Uh, after about a year, um, I want to say in 2010, of what I call on the shelf, I started to get that itch 
that a lot of dudes in our line of work get after being home and not being operational for some time. So I decided it was time to go back and do some more work, right? So I started applying for private contact contracting companies. Uh, was put on the shelf by a couple of them, and then about a year later, I got a call from one of them on a Wednesday afternoon that said, "Hey, we we need you to go to work Friday. Can you go?" So of course I said yes. You know, I'm not going to tell them no. I've been dying to do this. Uh, I think what I was missing was uh, also that sense of service. You know, because I could continue to be involved in the global war on terrorism, although not as a Marine proper, right? And I think uh, before I went, I decided that the Marine Corps couldn't afford me anymore. And for guys out there, brothers, I apologize for that. I know that sounds arrogant, but it was the truth. Um, so I went and worked for a couple of different companies. Uh, I worked in uh, Baghdad, Iraq as a close protection officer for a, a two-star general over there who was a spokesperson for the United States forces in Iraq. He was also the strategic effects director for the USFI. Uh, the same company, after that project ended, took me over to Afghanistan where I was there at an air base in the western part of the country, uh, supervising and training a guard force of local nationals that were in charge of securing the uh, U.S. air base, uh, a place called Herat Shinden was the name of the area. Uh, that was an interesting project, but uh, there, there's very few places on earth where, like I wonder who, who decided that that was a nice place to, <laughs> to start a country. I want to meet the guy that decided, I'm going to plant a flag here. Like, I just couldn't believe it. It was awful. The worst winter I've ever experienced. Uh, it was awful. And so I uh, jumped ship to a different company with some of my other teammates and we went over to work in uh, Indonesia at a gold mine, which is actually uh, happened to be the largest yielding gold and copper mineral deposit in the world. And so there was about uh, 35 or 40 of us expats there on the project that uh, made all the other expats feel good because uh, obviously a gold mine is a rich target for not just theft but for, you know, aberrant behavior as well otherwise uh, so and then from there actually I'd been cultivating a relationship with my wife at the time who I actually met back in Baghdad and she worked for the United Nations and so she was actually instrumental in helping me make the right connections that I needed in order to go work for the UN so I left that project and went to go work for what's called the United Nations Office for Project Services and that took me back to Baghdad where I was there working with uh, another UN agency called the High Commissioner for Refugees who were relocating uh, an organization of uh, Iranian dissidents that came over to Iraq to fight the Iranians during the Iraq-Iran war and they had just been sitting there in Iraq for you know the last 40 some odd years and so finally the UN and the uh, Iraqis and the United States Department of State said we need to get these guys into a new home and so essentially that was the, the organization was the People's Mujahideen of Iran people call them the, the Muj so we had to find third-party host nations that were keen to take them in uh, and get them there basically that was that mission and then uh, I was shopped around to a couple of different UN agencies that had security holes that needed to be filled so I ended up going to northern Iraq into Kurdistan and I worked in Erbil as the field safety and security advisor for another agency called the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs and that's a mouthful but it was exactly their mandate was to provide the coordination for the largest one of the largest humanitarian crises in the world's history which was when ISIS was making their big push in from the west and all these uh, internally displaced were fleeing up north. I went from a team of six in Baghdad to a team of one in Erbil. And actually earlier this evening when I mentioned that, you know, that was sort of that mission that decided I need to go home. This is this is too stressful to for anyone's health. This is just not healthy. So I was actually wearing three hats on that mission as the SIP mill coordinator between 
the U.S.-led coalition and the United Nations, the field security advisor for that agency, and then still a close protection officer for other U.N. workers and officials. So about uh, close to three years ago, moved back home and uh, decided to link up with some other prior service mates who had started consulting entities here in the U.S. Uh, they, they brought me on board with their organizations. We do military and law enforcement training events and consulting. Uh, I work for another company that actually we specialize in church safety team and security team training. So we train a lot of churches. In fact, we're traveling this weekend to, to take care of another one for uh, this weekend. It's a two-day training package. Um, we'll do security vulnerability assessments of their building and then if they don't have a team, we'll teach them how to stand it up and then we'll even train them on top of that and then provide follow-on services. Uh, either from products to continuing education and so on. Uh, and then I also worked with a, another company out of Nashville here, which is an executive protection company. So when I, when I moved back home, the work, quote unquote work, was available to me. But what took some time, as I mentioned earlier, was finding what I considered to be my real career, my real work, which one of the, the consulting firm that I worked for on one of the law enforcement events turned into a lecture that I would give during the event and it was a, a mindset lecture what I'm calling operational cognition and applied psychology specifically for SWAT police and because of feedback from those events and from that lecture specifically it's opened a lot of doors and sort of guided me into what I'm now it's very clear of my purpose here is to make sure that guys are prepared mentally and spiritually not just physically to go and face daily threats if that makes sense to you so that's sort of what I'm doing now. Uh, it, it parallels with a lot of other the rela uh, relationships that I have with uh, psychologists and you know both clinical and theoretical or otherwise who are keen to solve the same problems that I am. I've been traveling frequently to DC uh, trying to make some uh, move some mountains on Capitol Hill in that regard on a nationally mandated level particularly for law enforcement firefighters and emergency medical workers who are not getting psychological treatment that they need. <clears throat> That's and that's really the reason why when you and I discussed being on the podcast, I mean, that was really the main message, I think, and the main platform, or the main reason to use this platform was to talk about that mission, you know. Um, before we dig into that, I mean, <laughs> I wrote down uh, the question, why couldn't they afford you? Oh. <laughs> but, but, but that being said, I, you know, when you explain the level of things that you've done, it makes sense. But I want to go a little deeper because I want to know what is your skill set? You know what I mean? Like, like, yeah. uh, are you, is it the psychological side? Is it the planning side? Is it the physical side? Is it everything? I mean, <clears throat> you've obviously had a ton of training and a ton of experience. So where is, where do you consider your, what is your skill set that you really can rely on the most? I think it was your, your third or fourth example, which is everything. So I decided a long time ago that if there's something that I don't know how to do, I at least possess the potential and the capacity to learn how to do it. And if I don't know how to do it, then I'm going to seek out those that do it masterfully and I'm going to learn from them. So all of my skill sets have become because of that, because of that way of thinking. My skill set is that I understand that skill sets are attainable regardless of what they are. Okay. But it's obviously based off of interest sure. or yeah. necessity, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, there's certainly the tactical side of the house, like uh, you mentioned physical, so everything from uh, 
you know, the use of weapons, the employment of weapons, and, and by that I don't necessarily mean firearms or knives or grenades. Uh, in fact, in my lecture, I do my best to teach that there's only one weapon. When I walk out the door in the morning, I'm carrying one weapon, and that's the real estate between my ears. It's my mind, that everything else are tools. They're things that support any type of mission, regardless of what it is, if it's to save a life or take a life. Um, you know, those are just tools. Uh, so there's that definitely that skill set. There's the gift, I call it, of communication, and actually being able to relate to people on a human level rather than thinking that, uh, you know, keeping things strictly professional or that I'm somehow uh, an authoritarian figure or something like this. And because I've been at the bottom, I've, I've been, you know, at the lowest ranks and I get it. So I, I tend to, uh, Rudyard Kipling put it, he says, if you can uh, walk with kings and not lose the common touch, basically something to that, I'm paraphrasing, but I try to keep that modality with it. With that, that the, it raises a thought in my mind because you mentioned being able to connect with a human being um, in times of combat, mm. in times when you've been on the job, how do you decide when it's a human being in front of you or a target? Right. It, does that come down to simply whether or not your life is so at that, risk? That's actually a fantastic question. I've never lost sight of anyone's humanity, ever. And it's heartbreaking knowing the things that the, I'll call them atrocities because they are any time a human perishes at the hand of another it's an atrocity regardless if it was perceived as good or bad morally speaking you know we can justify ourselves all day but equally and opposite those guys are just as justified in killing us as we as you know as we are them so I never I never lost sight of that humanity factor but what I did define it as is a threat right and so if if the, the, my physical or, or well-being or that of my clients or my family or my loved ones or whomever, uh, if there's a choice, well, obviously the choice is, you know, it's very clear as to which side I'm going to go with. I mean, I, I wouldn't be here if I didn't feel that way. So they're still humans, right. but, but they are threats. And sometimes threats need to be stopped, right. if that makes sense to you. Interesting yep. side note about that is uh, the... There's a, a fantastic author and, and, and colleague that I follow. Uh, his name's uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. He's a retired fellow. He's, in fact, the only author to have two published works that are on that Marine Corps Commandant's required reading list. They're called On Killing and On Combat. Fantastic reads, right? So in On Killing, he described the what we call the, the hit rate or the, the kill rate of uh, U.S. forces on enemy forces and how during the Second World War they were very, very low that the soldiers on the battlefield, the Marines on the battlefield, had a very clear, natural, um, they had zero interest in taking the life of another human being. And so they were, they were firing, but they were intentionally missing because they didn't want to kill anyone. They wanted to play the part and they wanted to be present, of course, but they didn't want to actually kill anyone. Now, that's a, I think that's a natural thing, right? Of course, we don't, we're not born thinking, hey, I want to go overseas and kill people. It's definitely conditioned, right? And so, in the Vietnam War, they found that the hit rate dramatically increased. Dramatically increased. Was it because the enemy was nastier or meaner or uglier? No. What they found was actually very simple. There was a training tool during the Second World War, which was the target upon which they used to practice shooting. And it was a, a, a bullseye ring circular target. 
when they started training for the Vietnam War, they switched to human silhouette targets. There was a, a psychological operant, what's called operant conditioning, that happened to those soldiers, sailors, marines, and whomever, where they're now conditioned to shoot at a humanoid figure rather than a circle on the battlefield. So they, their mind has already dealt with that fact that at a distance, a, a paper, black silhouette paper target looks just like a human being downrange, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense to me. Um, this may be funny to, to some listeners or even to you, but you know, when I've seen movies like Full Metal Jacket and you know, they're in the Marine Corps and they're mm -hmm. training for Vietnam, right? It's all about what's my job, kill, right? Right? Is, is that similar to the training that you went through to be a killing machine? Obviously, you weren't in Vietnam, right? How old are you, by the way? Uh, I'm 33. Okay, yeah, so we're just about yeah. we're all, the three of us are about the same age, but. Did you go through similar training to where that's what you were conditioned for? Absolutely, yes. The, the Marine Corps is steeped in traditions of... Uh, of we have, they have mastered violence of action. The, the, you know, we wouldn't exist as a nation but for the violence of action of those guys. And, you know, it's... Hollywood has exaggerated it quite a bit, but it's very... Uh, you know, yeah, we are absolutely... They use language such as kill, such as... Uh, you know, and, and there's choice language used by the drill instructors in boot camp, of course. Uh, not as dramatic as Full Metal Jacket made it out to be, but yeah, it absolutely, the conditioning factor was absolutely there. Sure. Muse, uh, last record, where they had the Psycho Killer, what's the Psycho is the name of the track? And yeah. They, they actually have samples of uh, their, it's Marine Corps boot camp, but of this uh, recruit being yelled, uh, yelled at by his drill instructor saying, you know, say I am a Psycho Killer, and the recruit responds, I am a Psycho Killer. So. That was a bit exaggerated. In fact, I was a little bit upset with Muse for making that sort of claim because that is that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, we do not cultivate psychopaths intentionally. We cultivate killers. Now, and I want to make that distinction because, by the way, every single person, regardless if you're trained to kill or not, has psychopathic tendencies. What matters is your degree of control over your empathy, if that makes sense to you. Mm -hmm fascinating book I just finished uh, called the uh, Psych the good psychopath guide to success it's a fantastic read you guys should check it out it's actually quite funny it's a it's a co-author deal between a, a British SAS operator and then a, another British uh, clinical psychologist but it's pretty pretty excellent read he talks a lot about the the psychopath and everyone is is there a TED talk by that same person yes I think so okay because I, I, I saw a TED talk about psychopaths and it was it was quite fascinating um, I don't want to dig too much into that now because I'm honestly it's been a while since I saw it and I can't really remember the specifics but um, a lot of our listeners do take advice on what books to read so as we go if you have other recommendations oh sure yeah you know please please do um, but so with, with with all of this training with with the things that you've been through what now, because again, I want to get into the, the big mission, but what what are you using now to help civilians that you learned from a more tactical standpoint, um, in, and not even just civilians, but as you said, SWAT teams and police mm -hmm. officers, are you, are you physically training them with weapons? Are you physically training? I know you do Krav Maga, mm -hmm. like is, yes. does that come from your training in the military as well? Oh, certainly, and uh, yes, and so the, the short answer is yes. We, we do a lot of 
with the various organizations that work with, the, the one particular that we do the law enforcement events with, yes, it is a uh, multiple day tactical package uh, at a facility that, and we travel around the country doing this, different agencies will host us on it. Uh, it's a few day event that includes uh, one, two, or three different uh, officers from different agencies within like a six hour drive. So it's actually an interagency event. And what's fascinating to me about that, kind of what we were discussing earlier about this alpha inhibitor that I talk about in my lecture, a lot of these dudes, when, when they don't know each other and they walk into the same room, there's a, an, an immediate air of arrogance and there's this, these stone walls and they're not speaking to each other and they're visually kind of sizing each other up and see who's going to be the big dog on the range and all this stuff. And, uh, and of course, as it turns out, without fail, none of them are... <laughs> Are you know level seven or even six level, but you know one to ten operators. But there's that attitude, right? So one of the things I do before I even start an event is I actually I treat it like uh, fellowship in church. I ask the question: Does anyone here personally know every single person in this room? Of course, the answer is no. So I say we're going to take these next five minutes. Everybody's going to stand up, shake hands with every single person in this room, introduce yourself, tell them where you're from, you know what agency you're with, your favorite color, you married, kids. It's an immediate icebreaker, and it changes the mood of the event, which is what makes our event, I think, one of the things that makes our event very unique, and then why we're getting the reviews that we're getting after the fact. So yeah, it's physical, and of course, including that, that mental, psychological lecture. It's been life-changing. I've had guys actually give me that kind of feedback. They've literally used the words, you've saved my life. The language that they hear in terms of treatment from their agency is, oh, you were involved in a, a critical incident, you were involved in a shooting, take a few days off, uh, you, you know, paid leave, go, here, go talk to this lady, oh, and by the way, have her sign this because otherwise you can't come back to work, right? Um, and if you come back saying that you have any type of problems, mental problems, or that if you're on medication, you risk losing your job. And what's more, the culture and law enforcement is as such, it's a very much, like I said, the stonewall approach. You'll be perceived as weak, you know, as a, you just a non-hacker because you, you can't stand up to the trauma, if that makes sense. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, can you dig in a little bit to that topic of the alpha inhibitor? Yes. Because um, so we 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 discussed this on our podcast previously. We had a, a friend by the name of Daniel Beretta, who uh, who was also in the military, um, and just briefly, Daniel tells a story. Uh, he was in a he was in a motorcycle accident while he was still in the military, and he crashed into the back of a truck and basically severed his left shoulder without it actually coming off. And they had to they they didn't amputate at the time. Now he's an amputee and is much happier. But his arm was there, but it was completely dead. And during the time that he was in the, at the VA in recovery, um, he talks about one day his shoe came untied and he would be damned if he was going to ask another man to tie his shoe. Mm. And he walked around for about an hour in tears, basically, deciding what to do wow. and, and how, to, how to remedy this problem of something as simple as tying your shoe. Um, you know, and as you and I discussed, like, I'm personally going through this right now with my father. Mm. Um, my dad, and for those listening, you know, you may catch wind of this. You may have caught wind that I've been dealing with family, uh, a family issue over the past few weeks while I've been on tour and even before the tour. But my my father is 
was in Vietnam and he's a veteran and a uh, pretty serious special forces guy and he absolutely has a lot of trouble asking for help admitting that he's human admitting that there's something wrong and it's a big part of the problem that, that I'm dealing with right now so it's a very real subject for me it's very raw right now it's hard to even talk about in some ways so that's why I guess since you touched on it I really would like to hear your thoughts on this this idea of the alpha inhibitor and what a man should do right yeah so if you don't mind I'll actually pull an excerpt from the chapter please if you'd like yeah. so and I'm, I'm glad that you just said it because it proves my first sentence and that is you've all seen it so you've all seen it you've all encountered it in some way or another it is not limited to the tactical environment nor is it limited to a particular gender right many of us have heard it called the alpha male syndrome uh, I disagree with the title as uh, the I'll call it a disease or the, the syndrome is, most certainly does not apply to the male gender specifically uh, I've seen it mostly in private sector contracting and in all areas of law enforcement side note these guys are plagued with it right? Uh, we didn't seem to experience much of it in the Marine Corps. Maybe I was in a unique unit. I don't know. So what is the alpha inhibitor? The alpha, simply put, it's a state of being and believing that one achieves wherein they cannot be taught anything new. They cannot be proven incorrect, especially by those in their charge. They cannot be seen as being inferior or less capable by their subordinates, peers, or superiors. This state of being often includes an inhibition to continuing education because of the fact that they would be seen being taught by someone else in front of their peers. Common causes are age is one, uh, self-importance and or stroked ego by way of promotions or time and grade or status, uh, peer reverence, uh, institutional adoration, etc. So yeah, it's a real thing and it plagues everyone. Uh, I've never seen any worse cases than that in, in law enforcement, particularly the SWAT community and here's why. They're told they're special in their title special weapons and tactics srt special response team right so when they join that team there's an inflated ego that's attached with it they're told they're special special my father special, was special forces. forces so here's the thing and actually that that might be why i didn't see a lot of it in the marine corps nobody told us we're special we don't have to be told we just perform right the proof is in in the results so i think it has a lot to do with it in terms of titles and so on that's the alpha inhibitor right yeah it, I mean it hits home uh, pretty deeply for me um, as I said because I, I think that that is part of the reason why um, some of the the challenges that I'm facing personally with him are really coming to light um, and I, I think in some ways a lot of what's happening could have been prevented if the, me the mentality was different so my question to you is how do we change this yeah you know, how do we help people that do feel like they can't let someone teach them? Right. So that's a great question, and it's the, the question I've been trying to crack for several years now. Uh, what I've tried to do is narrow it down uh, to a three-tier audience analysis, which by that I mean you have administration level, folks that actually uh, can write policy and implement policy and procedure and practice. You have... I'll go to the opposite end. You have the guys on the ground. You got the special forces. You got the SWAT, the police, the regular police. 
you know, the civil, even the civilian contractors, you know, you got the, the end users, the firefighters, the emergency metal t technicians and so on. And then you have the middle, and that middle is actually uh, everyone else. So who does that include? That includes the public, right? That includes public perception. Uh, and this also ties over into the post-traumatic stress world because a lot of employers are less keen to employ someone that has post-traumatic stress. Why? Because they're viewed as being unstable. So they don't want to hire them. So they're therefore further victimizing them. How do we stop it? I think it comes from both directions. Like if you want to sort of meet in the middle, it's got to come from the ground, on the ground level, and that comes by way of educating the troops, educating the cops, you know, by way of either literature or uh, touring seminars or whatever the case is, and getting these guys to admit that they're human. Perfect example of this, I had the great honor to lecture uh, one of the special forces groups out at Fort Campbell, one of the teams. They asked me to come in and give my lecture before they deployed last year. And my partner who, who booked the event actually went to them and said, hey, is there anything particular that you guys are wanting to get out of this that I can tell Brandon so he can sort of better prepare for you guys? And they actually came back with a question. And the question was very interesting to me. They said, how do we flip the switch, go down range, do our work, come back home, and then flip the switch back off and be normal? Mm. Which is a very interesting question. And I didn't want to, you know, give an instant answer. I actually milled on it for about two days or so. My answer was actually quite simple. is like, it's impossible. You can't. What you should do instead is accept the fact that you're a human being and learn basic brain science and learn how incidents affect you and how you can actually develop coping mechanisms other than escapisms to actually deal with it. And a lot of it just comes from support, peer support. So anyway, how that ties into how do we fix that problem in terms of the offer is getting peers to agree with the fact that they're, you know, they're they're not invincible, that they're not stone walls, that they're also human beings. Uh, unfortunately, for law enforcement, it needs to also come from policy because the the problem is that if a guy is perceived as having an issue, he risks reputation and or job loss. So they're far less likely to want to actually seek any type of proper treatment. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense to you. Yeah, it, it does. And, you know, when we were talking before, <clears throat> uh, before the podcast, it didn't occur to me until now, but, um, so my sister had two very good friends, two twin brothers, um, Adam and Dan, and they were both Marines. And uh, Dan isn't here anymore because he couldn't cope with certain things and he ended up taking his own life. Yeah. And um, I, I wonder how much this, this plague, this issue that you're talking about leads down that path because, they f because people in this position feel like they don't have a, a, a way to ask for help. Right. It, it did very much so does. Uh, in fact, a couple of Marines from my unit have ended their own life because they couldn't see the options. The treatment's not given, first of all, and um, what treatment that is given is either subpar, it's just, it's just not working. And it's interesting that the reason why I, I'm committed so much to the law enforcement side is it's a very personal issue for me because these are my friends, these are my peers, my colleagues. A lot of military veterans become police officers, so they're actually carrying over a lot of that baggage from these last two conflicts, this global war on terrorists. They're carrying that stuff over into the law enforcement community, which a lot of folks 
tend to forget is one of the most stressful jobs in the world. You know, maintaining rule of law and order. And for anyone that's anti-cop, I'll invite you to go spend a week in Somalia or go spend a week in the Sudan where there are no police and see how much you appreciate them. It's a shame, right? And so it's a thankless job. It's remarkably stressful. And a lot of these guys, we have a lot of organizations that are out there promoting suicide prevention and suicide awareness for military veterans. There's a lot of, a lot of great progress in that world. Uh, we're rate, you know, Mission 22, 22 Kill, all these organizations, 22 veterans a day are killing themselves. Uh, we're trying to raise awareness, trying to raise awareness. We're aware. We get it. The thing that the vast majority of the public are not aware of are how many police officers are killing themselves daily. How many firefighters? How many emergency medical technicians? These guys are experiencing trauma on the EMS side literally daily, right? Now they're not actively in gunfights, but they're seeing babies that have been charred. You know, they're seeing people decapitated and dismembered in vehicle wrecks. They're experiencing traumatic incidents, right? They're seeing vivid depictions of, of human pain and suffering and violence. It's traumatic. You've got the firefighters who see it weekly, if not more. You got law enforcement who's seeing it, you know, we're looking at you know, news feeds every other day it's happening across the country. And the best they're being told is, hey, hang in there, tiger, suck it up. Don't be perceived as weak. So there's no... There's, it's no wonder that guys are suffering in silence and killing themselves. Yeah. Well, and, and my, my question is, is there no widespread government-based program or even locally-based program that is offering this service to these people um, I mean, it, it, does that exist to your so, knowledge? Short answer, no. Okay. And uh, that's actually one of my, that's what I'm calling my mountain. This is what I'm, one of the talks that I'm having in D.C. is to establish a federally funded, nationally mandated, basically version of, hopefully better managed, version of the VA for specifically law enforcement, fire, and emergency medical workers. It doesn't exist. What it's, it's left up to individual agencies. And then the first question that's asked, just like everything else, is oh, who, who's going to pay for right, that? Right? Right, where's the budget yeah. come from? And for so the, it's right. interesting. All you have to do is look at the United Nations. Who pays for the United Nations? Donor states. So you have, you have 50 donor states here in the country that can donate to standing up such an organization. It's doable. I mean, is that the right answer? I don't know. I don't have the right answer, but I, all I know is that uphill battles have been won. Why is this not... Why hasn't it been done? It's a great question. And, and, and also, who else is working towards this goal? That's a great question. I've, I've been able to link up with, um, with a few people that are working in similar circles. I've yet to encounter anyone with this degree of interest, which is a shame, actually. You know, you have guys that uh, that like to raise awareness, or that they will uh, profess bleeding hearts for the you know suicides of, of, of law enforcement and, and first responders, but nobody seems to be doing anything about it. And the, the question why hasn't it been done? It's a great question. I, I don't know why. I think a lot of it probably has to do with funding. I think a lot of it has to do with leadership. I also feel like if they were to stand up such an entity someone's going to have to admit that they've been doing it wrong this whole time. And that's where that alpha inhibitor comes in. I mean, that's the, that's the catch-22 of it all. Yeah. You know, 
um, yeah, who, who, who's to blame, right? Nobody's going to want to stand up and say, oh, well, you know, here's how we've done it forever, but guess what? We were completely wrong, and here's how we're going to start doing it. It's going to be a very difficult pill to swallow. I, yeah, I guess so, but from the other standpoint is, or the other argument would be, maybe the, the, the direction should be to not frame it that way, to simply say, it's no, it's it's no one's fault. We're not looking to blame somebody. In exactly. Fact, in fact, exactly. We're trying to make people feel comfortable enough to come forward. Yeah. And say, I need help, mm-hmm. instead of saying it's not my fault. Right. Right. Yeah. I was just gonna add, like, how how do you approach extolling the virtues of of mental health and and helping people ha- like develop coping mechanisms for these various lines of work that are incredibly traumatic, like how you said it's an uphill battle, mm-hmm. like what is, in in your experience, what is what is that battle? Like what, how, how do you how do you go to DC and, and try to make change? Yeah, it's that three-tier approach. Um, it has to come from an administration um, in order to actually affect policy, that's number one. But honestly, the biggest thing for me is, is convincing the end users that it's okay to admit that you're affected by something, right? Right. That is probably the biggest challenge that I think, and it come and it come, it's mainly in law enforcement. I've actually seen some great work coming out of the firefighter side of the house. There's a lot of there's a, a Canadian organization that's done some fantastic work in suicide prevention for firefighters as well. Um, but and, and there are not to say that those organizations don't exist for law enforcement but they certainly don't exist on a national level and what's more is that again it goes back to risking job loss risking reputation loss somehow we have to change their mindset which I'm confident I can do to make them understand that they're humans as well regardless of how long they've been in the business or how old they are or how many you know how many bodies they've slayed or whatever they want to say they're humans, you know. Do they do when 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 you're talking about this stuff to other people that can that can help change things and steer things in a more positive direction? Yeah. Is it difficult to show them that this kind of emphasis on on helping people and, and helping people cope and and giving and putting an emphasis on mental health? Do they see that it will make people more efficient? It will make people. Uh, you know, deal with this stuff better, and and to be able to return to various forms of work with a, a stronger mind. Like, is is that a difficult thing to explain to people? It's not actually. I've been very uh, fortunate in that the meetings that I have been having have been met with some very interested, raised eyebrows, and I can tell by their expressions that they're genuinely interested in the idea and they think it's a good idea. They think it's provocative. They think it's. And, and again, similar uh, to what you said, Matt, they they have this look as if why hasn't this been done? Almost, a, you know, it's like they're dumbfounded as to why. That's, it, that's relieving why to hear. <laughs> yeah. So the, there is good. There is light at the end of that tunnel for sure. And a lot of it is also this. The biggest, my in my opinion, one of the hardest mountains to move is the stigmatization of trauma. And so that that is probably the hardest thing to uproot right now. Right. Well, and one of the things that you and I were discussing is that it is that words are powerful, mm-hmm. right? The words that we use to describe someone who's seen trauma, right. 
um, not only affects them, but it affects the people in their lives and it affects the perception. Um, so what you, you actually said to me something that, and I don't know if this is more of a widespread or newer term being used, but um, I believe you referred to it as post-traumatic growth. Yes. Instead of, or post-traumatic stress. No, no just it's, post-traumatic, post-traumatic growth. growth. Yes, very good. Okay. Yeah. Um, is that something that is being talked about? It is being talked about in certain uh, clinical circles, yes. But okay. only if and when the end user actually gets to the treatment. And, and it's not with everybody. And, and what's interesting is because it became a very sexy topic. Like it became the in, in the in the care providing world of clinical psychologists and psychiatrists or otherwise mental health providers. It became a very sexy topic. So everyone wanted to get on top of it. I guess because I don't know. They felt either they felt they could help or they felt compelled that they should help something like this because it is a, a massive issue. The problem is that they're still learning classical diagnosis they're still learning classical language in the schools that they're going to and you know you got a kid that's 21 22 years old comes home from uh, uh, Helmand province who's just seen the worst kind of hell you can imagine and you set him down with a, an authoritarian figure that works for the veteran veterans administration and says hey you're disorderly that's an authoritarian figure telling that kid and so guess what he's gonna do he's gonna go home and he's gonna believe it so that it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's a self-perpetuating problem. And then, oh, and by the way, take this prescription. You know, take two of these daily. And uh, by the way, good luck getting a job. So even further victimizing those people. So we're experiencing, it's like we have to survive encounters on multiple levels. you got to first survive it physically when the actual traumatic incident occurs. Then we have to survive it again when we get home with the war with, with civilization. And in many ways, guys are further victimized by the process here than they were to begin with in whatever traumatic incident they encountered. So yeah, language is very powerful and shifting uh, what I'd like to see is a change in the actual language used in the diagnosis. So I'm not going to go to the American uh, Psychiatric Association and say, hey, I want you to change the words in your diagnosis Bible, but what I would like to see is that in the actual clinical treatment that we're not saying certain things to these guys. Because here's the thing, here's the fact. And this is, might offend some people, and if it does, I apologize. But it's backed by some pretty significant data. All you have to do is look at ASVAB scores. The guys that are most likely to experience trauma in combat, in the military specifically, are guys that are the lowest scoring cats on aptitude tests, right? Because you you know you got to have good brains to be a pilot. You got to be you know to be an engineer. All these other things. So when kids go into the recruiting station, they take that ASVAB. It's like, great, you've scored just high enough to be in the infantry. Congratulations, you're going to war, right? So not only are they the, the first ones to get in there, they're the ones who are most likely to not understand how to cope and deal and to not understand brain science. Am I saying that all guys in the infantry are dumb? Certainly not. Am I saying that all cops are dumb? Certainly not. What I'm saying is that the vast majority of them are not brain scientists. But there's very simple language that we can use and actually start educating these guys that will help a lot more than what they're being given now, which is literally nothing. A lot of cops, in particular in the SWAT world, they'll even refer to themselves as knuckle draggers. You know, it's almost like a like a badge of pride to be, you know, the big dumb brute that just kicks in doors and wraps people up. You know, uh, it's that's also I think one of the cultural attitudes that needs to change. 
the idea of being educated and intelligent needs to become just as sexy as knowing how to shoot at a thousand yards. So then, uh, how do you limit, or, or, or rather, how do you regulate that? Because it seems like if there is a predisposition to trauma mm -hmm. and not knowing how to deal with it, um, is it like a, a, a you know, is there a, do, do you lower the level in which you allow people to then participate or, or raise the level? You know, do you see what yeah. I'm saying? Like, yeah. how do you how do you fix that? Yeah, so that's a good question, actually. So there are some some wheels being turned right now on the Department of Defense side. So at least in the military, a project that they've just wrapped that I think they're going to start implementing either next year or hopefully later this year. So I'll give you an example. So in the Marine Corps, in a rifle platoon, you're given a, a sailor, a, a Navy corpsman. So he's our medic, right? They attach to our unit. Uh, if if you want to survive wounds physically, uh, as you know, as an infantry operator, it'd be a good idea to have someone that knows that has a very solid skill set on on you know pre-hospital trauma care, combat you know casualty care. Right. Makes sense, right? Right. So logic would dictate that. If you want guys to survive mentally as well on the battlefield, why not attach a mental health provider to your unit? These corpsmen, they go and train with us. They're they're almost they're guys out there. Your corpsmen, you're you're my brothers, right? They're they're treated as Marines as well. So having that psych provider who's also just as trained, he goes to the same boot camp, he goes through all the same training. He just has that little bit extra to bring to it. I think that's a fantastic way is to actually attach a healthcare provider. That, know, that can blow through all the BS and all the psychobabble and actually educate dude because there's a lot of downtime in the field too and you can use that downtime to train dude and spin dudes up and say hey when we get over there here's how you're gonna start thinking and seeing things and here's how you're gonna feel about it and, and here's you know they're gonna start educating these guys yeah so that, 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 that's one way I think that, that probably the best thing I've heard in terms of trying to you know cut it off at the head so to speak so there's that preemptive side that's extremely important, and that comes from education. And then, of course, there's the the post in terms of treatment. So, you know, how do we marry them all together is the big question, and how do we provide that same level of support for law enforcement? Right. You know, it's funny you see in movies like you know the uh, like look at Lethal Weapon. You know, when Riggs has to go talk to the 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 police department shrink. Yeah. And it's like a big joke. Yes. Exactly. You know, it, it is that the sentiment. Essentially, oh, most definitely, and and that's actually a, that's a great segue, and it's a great example of how pop culture influences reality, uh, and particularly uh, widespread use of violence. There's there's a lot of research that backs this up. In fact, uh, Dave Grossman, who I mentioned earlier, he's actually got a, a, a recent release that I just finished, which is I can't say enough good things about it. It's called Assassination Generation. Uh, it's a co-authored effort, and it's essentially about the effects that media violence has on people and has on a population. You know, for years and years, our, like our parents and grandparents grew up watching westerns, which would, you know, it had violence in it, but it was certainly a lot more mild than what we see today. Uh, and then add on top of that hours and hours of unrestricted use of extremely vivid and violent video games, not just movies, but TV, and video game, all these sorts of things those have an effect on reality you'd be foolish to deny it and again there's there's great data to support the arguments very compelling arguments indeed that how pop culture can 
influence reality. And so yeah, when guys like that and Lethal Weapon go in there, this is event. You know, this is how that cop that watched that movie when he was a kid is how he's going to treat that meeting. It's a joke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's why I bring it up. It, it seems to be the way that it's perceived. But what's scary is that it is the reality now. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's why it's great that you're doing the work you're doing to change that, to try and change that. Yeah. You know, to change the perception. Um, so I want to, I want to, unless you want to keep going down this road, I want to change gears just a little bit. Sure. Because um, you mentioned uh, a lot of downtime in the field, yes. which both Jake and I can relate to in our own line of work. I mean, there's a ton of downtime on tour. You know, we we have our the hours here and there, and the times here and there we need to go and, and do things every day. Um, but obviously, we're not typically under fire or in threatening situations for the most part. Although we did play in Atlanta yesterday, where the day before someone was murdered in the same venue. Yeah. So um, that's 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 an interesting well, thing. Uh, you bring up a good point. Like we're not in combat, but with the way that the news kind of perpetrates what is going on in our country when it comes to like mass shootings and uh, being in public places, and 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 you feel very very vulnerable in these situations so I just want to put it out there that like even though we're not in combat and I'm not making any sort of comparisons I'd be lying if I didn't say that I wasn't at least a little bit concerned being on stage or being in a public place or walking in Times Square or you know it's just uh, these these are thoughts that go through people's minds I, I will draw that comparison for you and I will say that and I'm gonna use this the Vegas incident as as an example that entire incident, every single person there is officially certified combat veteran. They have experienced human contention at one of the most ridiculous levels. You know, It's not outside the realm of possibility for it to happen anywhere, so I don't think it's an unfair statement at all. You guys are very vulnerable, especially, I can't go, I can't go to any crowded place without my back to the wall. You know. Right. Is, is that hyper-vigilance? No, it's just vigilance. It's just being aware of my space. I want to be able to see everything that's around me because guess what? It's not Mayberry anymore. It's a different world. And we see almost daily now that folks are out to hurt each other. So uh, we can be the foolish one and keep our head in the sand or we can be the wise one and you know, be aware of our space and be prepared for those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is frightening. I mean, you mentioned the Vegas incident. Um, we were just talking about how um, Dimebag Daryl, yeah, you know, was assassinated right. on stage. I mean, it, there's not a show that I play where something like that doesn't cross my mind. But there's this also voice in the back of my head that's kind of like, ah, oh, no, that's not going to happen. It's, yeah. it's you know, it's yeah. like winning the lottery. Right. It's so rare. It is, and and that's the, I think the only thing that still justifies it in people's minds. But but it's not though. It's not. It. it I mean, it is rare I guess but it's also in, in our line of work we're the first ones to hear about it right and we're the first ones I think to really <coughs> be scared of it sure well you say it's rare and yeah I guess data would point to the fact that it is it doesn't happen as frequently as I guess as bombastic as the media reports it, it does but like just one of these inc incidents is unacceptable I don't yeah, it, you right. know it's just like yeah. it, it, it and that's kind of the way that I feel about it. yeah it data points that it's rare but like this shouldn't be no so. certainly and I, I encourage everyone that I speak with uh, to never ever lose their sense of 
of outrage that we have to think like this. This is not normal. It should not be normal. It is not okay that I have to stand with my back against the wall. It's right. not okay. Yeah. But it's the reality. I agree. Yeah. You know, it's funny. It When we went out to eat earlier, like, I kind of let you choose... Or I didn't let you, but I'd stood back and watch where you choose to sit. Mm. Yeah. You yeah. know, and I, that was a thought yeah. that crossed my mind. Because I was going to, you know, go down and sit, but I was like, you know what, like, maybe Brandon's going to be a little bit more sensitive to where he sits than I am. And I don't want to take that seat. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Yeah, I appreciate that. But I, but I think about that, and I, and I try to learn from those situations, because I have that. We've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. The last time I was actually in Nashville, we were walking down the street, and we were discussing... How do we? How can we tell a threat from right. fifty yards, a hundred yards, twenty yards away? And how do we prevent a threat from from that far? Yeah, you know. And you simply just were saying, you know, use your eyes and use your intuition, and don't let anybody ever get that close. Essentially, yes. You know. So it, I teach my crowd, my gas students a very fundamental rule, and that's the best fight you can have is the one you don't have to have. Right. The fight you don't have is the one you win one hundred percent of the time. And so just by being simply aware of your space and aware of your travel plans and aware of travel plans of others, what we call it in the military, the acronym was EMPCO, or the Enemy Most Probable, Most Probable Course of Action. So by you know reading a space and saying, oh, that guy will probably walk that direction, so I'll walk the other, for example. Uh, but yeah, little things like that. Just It's just an awareness. You know, So many folks are too tuned into their smartphone when they walk out of the grocery store. Uh, which is unfortunate because, like for example, uh, solo attacks on you know vulnerable female victims happens to be the vast majority of them happen in transitional spaces, which are parking structures, parking lots, you know, things like this. From going from point A to point B, and they know that their head's going to be down in their smartphone rather than up and looking around. Interesting. One of my partners, uh, further to that point, one of my partners uh, was on FBI task force for some time, and he had the great opportunity to interview a lot of. Uh, batterers and rapists and you know guys like this you know, convicted felons that had been uh, had executed violent attacks on females and he actually asked them these questions like what do you look for in a victim you know what you know what's your type so to speak and they, they actually said something quite profound like our type is whatever type is available and by that they meant the ones that are not paying attention to their surroundings and if they will simply look at them they go under the uh, idea that they've already been identified and they're far less likely to attack that person. Well, I made <clears throat> I made a note of that because it, it it's just I know so many women that like that you know live in for example from Baltimore City. My girlfriend lives in Baltimore City. Right. You know, it's a constant concern of mine when she's you know out at night and will go home and it's like is she taking an Uber and even in the Uber you know how safe is that mm-hmm. you know and we don't. It, I guess we haven't really seen many um, crimes that occur in that world, or at least if, if, if there are like you know right. like transit crimes like that with Uber and with Lyft and these companies, mm-hmm. it's just surprising to me that there aren't more. And I know it sounds really bad. Well, I think uh, I mean they've. I I think I know why. It's because they've already been identified. There's they're they're part of a system. They're in the computer. Their name pops up on their phone. Like it, it's it's almost it's self deterrent. So like yeah, you, it is you, 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 yeah. you can't stay anonymous when you're you know driving a, a cab around and right. you know you can't. It, a lot of people wouldn't take that risk. It's still pretty scary, you know. It oh just, yeah, I mean you never know who you're dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my. To, to make this a little bit lighter, um, 
my question about you know downtime in the field was sort of headed towards like you know what do you do to keep yourself entertained what do you do to keep yourself from from not having to sit there and watch the clock just tick 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 sure you know how do you keep yourself busy with the downtime in the field you know because you and i were yeah. discussing not to, not to cut you off but you right. and i were discussing you know there's certain times in our lives where the clock is just ticking so slowly yeah you know and that's when you kind of know that you're just like not stoked yeah but those other times you know how do you how do you fill that that space yeah so a lot of dudes will turn to i mean particularly in the in the military we've filled a lot of time with each other's interests because at a, a lot you know after so many days down range you start to figure out that your personal interest gets old <laughs> so you start reaching out to each other to fill those gaps what's your hobby can you teach me how to do that can you teach me how to play guitar can you teach me how to lift weights can you teach me how to you know play spades or whatever your thing is you know uh, so that helped a lot and, and having the that amount of different attitudes and personalities available to you was very helpful uh, in my own personal downtime here now when I don't have a, a infantry platoon to to pick at uh, I actually I spend a lot of time in my garage I, I'm a woodworker I, I make things I'm not just a wood, I call myself a maker so I, I like to I like to solve problems with material so if I've got a need in the house I'll build it or if someone comes to me and says hey can you make this for me uh, yes I can I don't know how but I'll figure it out and yes I will and I usually do and it turns out I'm quite good at it so uh, I, I quite enjoy that I do a lot of reading I do a lot of listening I'll of course love still listening to music but my time is rarely unoccupied I think is what I'm trying to say <laughs> which is it's good to hear that because I think there's a lot of people that um, don't necessarily know how to occupy their time they don't know what hobbies they have right you know me and Jake have even discussed this like for myself like I a lot of times feel like I need more hobbies that aren't necessarily work-related right. hobbies. Yeah, it's healthy. It is. Um, and for someone like yourself who, who even said, like, um, if you didn't know how to do something, you wanted to learn how to do it. If there, if there was a, a tactic or a skill as part of your skill set, what you're doing, that you didn't know, at least you knew that your talent was that you could figure it out. Yes. Um, how would you suggest that someone finds... A hobby to fill their time with. Hmm. What do you think about that? Because we've had people give this in, answer or answer this question before on the podcast. How do people find hobbies? Yeah, um, and how did how did you find yours so clearly? I mean, yeah. was this just things you've done your whole life? Are you you know is ma making things for example? Mm -hmm. Is that something you've done your whole life, or is that something you discovered? My relationship with tools goes back to I was six years old, and that comes from uh, you know crafts and things like that in the in the Boy Scouts they're actually that's a great organization they do a great job about occupying the time and so uh, I started using power tools by the time I was eight or ten or something like this and that just sort of cultivated and became its own monster and as far as other folks like some of the things that I got interested in even quite recently perhaps might have just been from watching a video on it and thinking that's really cool hey I could probably do that and then you kind of start probing the waters and seeing how difficult or how time or money consuming it is and then you make that decision uh, I think everybody kind of has that thing sitting in the back of their head like I'd like to do that someday mm -hmm. you know do yeah. it I think yeah I mean that's that's really 
that's really the uh, the philosophy that I think you're getting at is just like try it. Like, mm-hmm. to, and I think a lot of people ha- are apprehensive because they think that like they're just not going to be good at it right off the bat, and that's probably true. They probably will not be good at it. But right. there's this, uh, you know, as as long as you have the motivation and the ambition to just try it, you won't ever know. And it's a very simple concept, but people get in their own head and they stop themselves from even trying it that's and, it. and that's a huge you know that, that that holds people back a lot there's a yeah there's a revelation and understand i i came to it at some point i, I don't think i can tell you exactly when it happened for me but there there is that moment where you realize and it's such a powerful thing where you realize that you can do things you know folks so many i think too many people see something that they think is cool and they emit the story they immediately tell themselves is well i i can't do that right i never thought you know necessarily uh 15 years ago that i would be playing the mandolin but here i am playing the mandolin because i've always loved it and i was like man someday i'm gonna do that and then when i finally had the time to do it i bought a mandolin mm-hmm. and started playing it's a very percussive instrument so you know it resonates with me so yeah yeah it's interesting that you that, that you bring uh bring up this idea of well, i mean self-doubt I guess right. is the best way to describe it. Um, I'm reading something right now that is talking about experts in general, people that, that are experts about a certain topic and how you can essentially um, turn something that you tur- turn turn something that you're an expert about or an expert in some kind of skill mm-hmm. into a business, right? Yeah. Uh, but so many people who are experts even, who, who are perceived or would be considered experts because they know more about something than the general population, still have this feeling of, I'm not an expert, like, why, how can I call myself an expert, you know? I don't know more than this person who taught me, so why am I the expert, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and that's just, I don't know, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to me right now because I'm, I'm thinking about in my life, what what areas am I an expert? You know, in, in what areas am I an expert? In, in, in what things can I share with other people? Um, and I'm just curious how you've discovered that about yourself, because obviously you are, you, you have an expertise, you're putting it to good use now to help people, yeah. and I think that's the goal. Yeah. How did you discover that? So how did you, and how did you get the balls mm-hmm. to say, obviously, I don't think we, I don't think you have much trouble having balls to do a lot of things with the things you've been through but I mean even still it's like that takes self-confidence mm-hmm. to put yourself out there as a expert yes. in front of people who are very strong-minded yes this is an excellent question in fact I, I hesitate to say that it was me alone that decided that I could speak with some level of authority on it uh, and a lot of it comes from a struggle that I had for years about something that we're crazy about here, not just in America, but a lot of other Western countries, cultures rather, is this idea of credentialism, and this idea that uh, there's some uh, level of expertise that's attached to uh, some type of degree or certification, which couldn't be any further from the truth. It's probably one of the most damaging fallacies that we've ever experienced in modern life, and that you go to a, a four-year, get a four-year, eight-year, whatever degree, and all of a sudden you're now a master of the craft, uh, which is a completely wrong way to think about it. It bothers me so much that there's a lot of people that are given a platform, and they abuse these credentials 
and they're actually giving horrible advice. Right. First of all, they're giving advice to begin with. They're not teaching people how to help themselves, but they're claiming that they can help everybody. But they're giving them the wrong advice. And so I'm very adamant in that. Like, for example, when this book is published, you know, I, 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 a lot of books I pick up and it'll say authored by uh, Dr. So-and-so or, or so-and-so PhD or so-and-so. That's a stamp of authority that, you know, a lot of folks will glance at, either consciously or subconsciously, will think, hey, that person knows what they're talking about. So it, it, sell, it inevitably sells more books, I get it. I've actually been toying with the idea, uh, <laughs> jokingly, writing by not a Dr. Brandon Bateman. Right. Because I want to make that point, I want to make it very clear. So right. what makes me an expert? I don't, first of all, I don't, I don't call myself an expert, but what I have found is that the way that I communicate with people, because I've been there and done that, and because I resonate with those dudes on a human level, I've been very effective, and the feedback has been very strong. And they're far more likely to want to listen to people like me than Dr. So-and-so. Right, and if you can see visibly that you're helping someone, yes and they tell you and you know it, that should be the credential. Exactly. Right. Yeah, and so that was the moment. I, I kind of briefly mentioned it in the car when I started reading post-event surveys. And there were particularly uh, a couple of cases of guys that uh, I read things that said my lecture changed their, or rather saved their life. I had a gentleman that wrote to me about two weeks after an event and told me that my lecture alone has solved post-traumatic stress issues he's been having for over 15 years. So it, it, yes, it's very telling, you know, and th these are issues that the Veterans Administration and, and even his agency couldn't help him deal with. He used the word solved, and that was that pivotal moment for me where I realized, okay, I've got something here. I know how to talk to these guys, and I know how to make them listen. Right. Well, that's great that you recognize that for yourself, um, because it is going to help a lot of other people, you know. And I and that it's funny. I, I got kind of excited when you said that because it's exactly it was the next point in this book that I'm reading mm. which was that part of the reason why people don't take that leap into doing the thing they want to do as an expert or an educator is because they don't feel like they have the credential to do so or right. the degree to do so right. and that is just it's poisonous bullshit it's, yeah. a, it's a lot of wasted experience that could go into helping yes. people and educating people and it really like that's that's the credential yeah. is to you know, your applied experience can help people. Oh, and that's, absolutely. That's what that's what you want to yeah. do, and it you know the I think the the whole focus and emphasis on having a degree or a plaque or whatever you want to call it is just it's a distraction. Absolutely. Yeah. I've experienced that a lot um, with some of the law enforcement personalities that I've encountered. Brandon C. Bateman is not a law enforcement officer, so. Who am I to be, you know, lecturing these guys? And I, I just, I just, I can't help but laugh in the face of that argument because clearly what I'm saying is helping these guys. That's who I am to be talking to these dudes. I don't have to be a cop to teach a cop how to deal with trauma. Does that make sense to you? No, you just have to be someone who's dealt with trauma. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's such an open book, you know. Right. It's an asinine argument. So, speaking of that, um, when you and I talked a bunch of weeks back, we discussed that there was these different pivotal moments in your life, um, moments that helped you uh, realize things, just mm. about essentially what you're doing now, but also just big moments. Um, 
and I know that there's a couple different pivotal pivotal days, pivotal experiences. I'm curious if you're interested in sharing any of those, any one of those, as as a way that could potentially help somebody else. Certainly, yeah, um, yeah. So the way I describe it, because I actually use one of these uh, examples in my lecture. And the way I describe it to these guys is, uh, first of all, you you cannot outright prevent traumatic incidents. You, you can't say, okay, I'm going to go out and, and I'll never experience trauma. We don't have that ability, right? So preparing for it is not, uh, it's not a, a chicken little circumstance. The, the sky is falling. You know, we're not crazy for thinking that we should be prepared for these sorts of things. And so I'll draw the, the parallel and why do you practice with your firearm officer so-and-so? Well, so I can be accurate with it. Okay, so why don't you practice with your mind as well? so that you're better prepared you know, to deal with threats when they come and that trauma can be a perceived threat to your mind, right? So there's that whole sort of parallel idea there. For me, the didactic approach that I took, and what's interesting is I came to this conclusion in about 2005 after my first deployment in 2004. I came to the conclusion without being able to articulate it. I couldn't share it with anyone. I didn't know how to describe what I was feeling and thinking. I just knew that I was feeling it and thinking it, right? And so what I decided about mid-2005 was that I've had the worst day of my life. It's done. I know it. Uh, I can go back to it whenever I want. I can recall it. I remember it vividly, moment for moment. August 19th, 2004, it's the worst day of my life. The good news is, every day after that is a good day compared to that. Why? What was, what, I mean, what was that day? So my friends aren't dying. We're not getting blown up with IEDs, these sorts of things. My, you know, it, it can always be worse. We're not being shot at with rockets, with whatever. That I can count on, and so that was one of those, the, after the deployment, that was a pivotal moment when I sort of decided that that was the, that was the I've had the worst day of my life. Right? When or where is irrelevant, but the fact that I've had it was the point that I was sort of convincing myself. Right. Now, um, another one of those came when, uh, and there was a, a portion of that deployment where we were getting uh, mortared and rocketed daily. Like you could set your, set your watch by it, and this was in uh, Anbar province outside of Fallujah, right? So those guys were, that was a rough year, all right? And it was around 10 a.m., I want to say every day for like weeks, we would just get hit. and. I was outside of this shelter one day walking around and my section leader happened to be walking with me and we received that incoming fire, right? And of course we, we did what we naturally would want to do and take cover and sort of thing. But then these, these rounds started getting closer and closer and closer and it was almost as if they were walking them into our position and they were getting louder and louder and the ground was shaking ever more violently. And I remember thinking that at this rate, at this progression, one of them's about to land on us. And that was the first time where I had come to the conclusion and accepted the fact that I was going to die. I, I didn't see it as somewhat of a defeat. It was almost like a sense of surprising euphoria where I just, this is it. That is a pivotal moment. That is a life-changing thing to experience. Not a lot of, not everybody can experience that sort of thing. It's so powerful in retrospect because you're just so ever more grateful for the days that you're alive. But coming to that sense of acceptance, not capitulation, but just acceptance. It's like, okay, I cannot do anything to prevent this. 
I've accepted it. I've lived a happy life. Brother, it was good knowing you. Yeah. It was a very magical moment. And I and I don't I don't perceive that as of course it was a traumatic incident, but I don't I don't perceive it as um, uh, traumatic stress. You know, I, I don't let it sort of affect me in the negative. Uh, that's one of those things that I look at as a great learn. I look at it as an experience rather than uh, something that not something that happened to me, but very much something that happened for me. If that makes sense to you. Yeah. Just to be a little bit more specific about that instance, how did you survive? They stopped. That's it. It just stopped. I felt, you know, it was very interesting. They're, call it a hedge of angels, I don't know what it was, but guys very near and dear and close to me were perishing, and I came out completely unscathed. Is that some type of divine intervention? I don't know. Uh, but I think the the mission is very clear henceforth, and I, I don't disagree with there was perhaps a reason why they stopped to get metaphysical on you. <laughs> right. No, that's okay. Um, that being said, I mean, if, if, if there have been days like that where you consider it to be, and now is that the day you consider it to be the worst day of your life, or is that a different experience? That was a different one. Yeah. Okay. So there, yeah. And then there was another one that, uh, actually this was back on that, on the worst day, so it's interesting, you, you kind of take away different lessons. Even though it all happened within an eight-hour period, you take away different lessons and you remember different things very vividly. One of the things that, uh, after that convoy was, or that patrol rather, was hit, we, you know, we did our immediate action drills was to punch out 360 degrees of security and uh, point rifles and weapons outboard and try to see if there's any, waiting for a secondary attack, right? It might have been uh, something worse than just a, a massive IED. And I started looking at, we were about 600 yards or so away from some houses, some folks' shelters. And there was an old fellow in his window, like sitting just watching us. Now, at the time, when I see a person and they're holding a phone, immediately I think they're getting ready to trigger another explosive. And so I had a, back then we had only recently been issued these nice high-speed optics that had a great magnification capability. So I, I drew a bead on this fellow and my rifle safety selector went to fire and I'm sitting there and I'm holding, uh, in literally holding in my hand, and, and, and this, I'm only describing this as how I perceived it well after the fact. In the moment, what I was waiting for him to do was to start pushing buttons, in which case I was gonna smoke him. But what I came to realize what that was, was possessing the power of death over life, if that makes sense to you, mm -hmm. and experiencing those different emotions on those different times are very, very magical and pivotal moments. It's it's very difficult to describe. I can tell the tale, but it's difficult to articulate the feelings that are associated with it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I and mean, it's heavy. Um, there's something I want to ask you about. Um, because you, you've, I mean, you've been expressed to me, there's been some times when you've had some pretty rough goes since were these experiences and remembering the quote-unquote worst days of your life did they help you in other bad times absolutely you know? absolutely yeah so you develop a uh, you develop a bit of a conditioning to it certainly uh, strangely enough toward the end of that deployment when in the beginning it was terrifying toward the end when we were shot at 
you don't care anymore. It's almost as if you've you've accepted number one that it's going to happen, and you just you develop this sense of numbness. Like there's literally nothing I can do about it. So why, you know, why get all upset about it in that moment? Why not just, just kind of let it happen? So there was there was that moment of just kind of numb, like a numb. I don't whatever. Whatever happens, happens. I don't care. But you obviously still have to. I mean, I would imagine you, you took cover. Or, oh sure. You know, it's not yeah, like yeah. you're standing like well, hit me. You know, well, no, like, and actually. Quite the contrary, there were a couple of times where we would just stand there. Huh. Yeah, this happened. It was, it was funny too because in that particular, there was a, a high troop turnover, so there were a lot of new guys all the time. There were the, the salty dogs leaving and a bunch of the, you know, the new faces coming in. And you can always tell who the new faces in town because they're the ones that are you know freaking out and running for cover and all these sorts of things. It's, it's a, I think I want to say it's probably damaging psychologically. But in many ways, it's also uh, quite relieving. But like, didn't you care if you got hit? <laughs> I did. I, yeah, of course I cared. I think it was just I'd reached a certain level of numbness. I don't know how else to describe it than right. just being numb. When when you were in this situation, was I mean, prior to this, I'm assuming that you've had a degree of tactical training that could you you your surroundings you see where your exits are you see where the fire is coming from were, were these two things at odds with each other your your sense of numbness and and your sense of training were these two things like kind of fighting for positions for the forefront of your brain or were they both happening in parallel it, i think they very much happened in parallel mm -hmm. that's a very interesting question um because you do you still act it's not as if i was uh like weekend at Bernie's, I wasn't right. You know, yeah, doing nothing. But yeah, I wasn't particularly scared. I think is what I'm trying to say. Right, and and I guess uh, how how was your perception of time affected while this stuff was happening? Because generally, yeah. when you're experiencing uh, right combat, time. I understand that stands still. It yeah, it's yeah. like it, it either slows down yes. or it's like just happening at a, like some some rapid rate. How, what, what was that like for you? Eight-hour incidents seem like only a couple of hours. It just slows. It, 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 or I guess in that in that sense, speeds. I don't. I don't know. I'm kind of lost track. But yeah, time seemingly stands still. And what's interesting is this: you can watch uh, post-shooting interviews with a lot of police officers who will describe the incident as they saw it, and then they'll go back and review the vehicle dash cam footage. And it tells a completely different story. Not because that officer was trying to be deceitful, but because he literally had no recollection of time, at least in the aftermath, and being able to share. It's fascinating, actually, how the mind works. So that, that brings up something that I've wanted to mention on this podcast. Um, and it, it may be a good way for us to sort of start to wrap up, because I think, and, and of course, if there's anything else you want to dig into, by all means. Um, but... You and I were talking about anxiety, mm. um, I don't know, a while ago, months ago. It was a long time ago, actually, maybe even a year. We were on the phone, and we were discussing that I was dealing with some level of anxiety at the time, and I was really interested in toughening up, coming to see you and coming mm. down here for some training and, and so forth, which still, like, I haven't done, and Jake and I have been actually talking about that. We haven't been yeah, able to... Yeah, we talk about you a lot. Yeah, oh, thank you. We haven't had a chance to do it. <laughs> And it is still something I'm interested in. Maybe that is one of my hobbies that I need to explore. But 
we were talking about fear. We were talking about anxiety. We were, and, and, and I was saying that I was afraid of what I, I don't even remember at this point what I was feeling yeah. or what I was anxious about. But do you remember what you told me? Do you remember this, like the scenario you described when yeah. trying to express I, the I, difference between like being like experiencing real fear right yeah so yeah you were talking about um actually i think you were talking about being afraid of some things or right. something like this and i and i uh and i made the clear distinction between uh fear the actual what's what is called a signal in the presence of danger versus worry or anxiety or doubt or sort of these sorts of things that a lot of people assume is fear right a lot of people say well i'm scared to of this job interview or whatever you know it is they have to endure when in actuality that's just stress that's just an anxiety that's not actually yeah the example i used i believe was uh imagine i i call you up on the phone in the evening and i say hey matt uh in about an hour i'm going to come to your house jump through your window and stab you in the throat and then i hang up the phone and then it begs the question would you be scared a lot of folks point to you well yeah i'd be scared i'd be terrified well, actually no you would be worried now fast forward an hour and here I come actually flying through the window going after your neck with a knife now you're scared now you're experiencing a signal in the presence of danger in which case your hopefully autonomic nervous system responses will protect you the startle reflect the, the startle startle reflex as they call it it's interesting when if you watch YouTube and you can watch scare cam reels you ever watch these like the yeah. compilations of scare cam sure. they're a riot but what's interesting is that when people get scared where do their hands go up up right here right in front of their face and in front of their neck in front of their vitals this is an autonomic autonomic nervous nervous system response we've survived as a species because of startle reflex isn't it interesting it is it's very fascinating yeah so fear in that regard though I, and then this is also a part of my lecture fear is is a tool it's not necessarily a bad word and a lot of people have they seem to have a, a poor a rather negative relationship with fear and, and it also kind of ties into that alpha inhibitor thing, like I'm not scared of anything. Fear is actually a gift. There's a fantastic book uh, in, our, in our realm called The Gift of Fear by uh, a fellow named Gavin De Becker. He started a, a great security firm, modestly named Gavin De Becker and Associates. But it's called The Gift of Fear. And it's all about actually using this thing to your advantage and how it's... A, it's it's the reason why we've survived as long as we have. Like fear is actually a good thing, and to deny it and to pretend it doesn't exist is foolish. Right. Yeah. Going into those, if I may, talking about the relationship that people have with fear, in terms of the treatment of post-traumatic stressors, right, or incidents, as they were. Another way I describe this to guys is having. I describe it as two types of partnerships. Two, two di there's a dynamic, right? So there's two types of partnerships or relationships you can have. It's very simple. It doesn't matter what it is. You know, if you look at your your dining table in your house, there's an empowering partnership between the table surface and the legs. Without the legs, the table would fall, right? It's a stupid example, but it, it's a fact. Every single thing that exists, exists in one of two forms. It's either adversarial or empowering, right? And so when guys receive or they experience an incident and they look at it as a trauma and they're told that they have post-traumatic stress disorder what they're actively unknowingly they're cultivating an adversarial relationship with trauma 
and with themselves. The story, again, goes back to the stories that they're telling themselves as an adversarial relationship. Whereas changing the language and changing the perception to post-traumatic growth is actually an empowering relationship. And those relationships exist between absolutely everything, everything that is, uh, physiological, technological, or otherwise. They exist in two forms. It's actually, when you kind of step back and look at it, it's very easy to see if any circumstance is empowering or adversarial. That can be business partnerships, that can be uh, marital relationships, you know, with your spouse, that can be the relationship with your kids, it can be relationships with your coworkers, whatever it is. A lot of these alpha guys tend to, they obviously don't understand this, and they live in this world of adversarial relationships. They assume that when they go out on the street and they deal with uh, Joe Citizen, who may or may not have a you know a warrant for arrest or something like this, they treat every single person adversarially. And it, or it, I say they, a lot of them do, not all of them at all. But then inversely, the civilian perceives that officer. Guess what? As an adversary, they've pulled me over, they've inconvenienced me, they've stopped me from going to pick up the kids from whatever. They've now made my day bad. They're an, they're, an, they're an adversary, which is awful. Yeah. It'd be nice to change that, that perception, you know? And I think that's what you're essentially trying to do from, in, from inside out. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. And so you, you have, uh, the way I describe it is you have the, your, your relationship with anyone else, that's one, and then there's your relationship with yourself. So like you can develop great empowering relationships with family, coworkers, or everyone else, but if your internal relationship with yourself is suffering, your structure will collapse. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah and it's it's what we were discussing earlier, even at dinner, is the 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 rings of perception, right? You know, and you have this perception of yourself. You have this perception of what people closest to you think and then you have the perception of what you think the people closest to you think is that correct yes yeah so yeah so there's the out the in and then what you think the in is right yeah right and I hope that I mean this is something that I work on that I'm that currently I'm I'm struggling with with decisions that I'm making for myself and for my friends and for my family and for the band and and so forth you know there's there's a lot going on personally that, that I'm thinking about um, and without going into too much detail I guess my hope is that you know when you talk about fear and when you talk about worry and the big difference between worry and fear and um, just simply being scared uh, or, or anxious about something and actually having a threat I hope that people can really start deciphering the, the difference between those two things yeah It'd be, it would be life-changing. Yeah. Yeah. It would be. It would be. Um, and, you know, we've talked a lot about about anxiety on this podcast. We've talked, uh, we get a lot of questions about how to deal with certain subjects and certain topics and certain things like that. And um, it's amazing. And, I, and, I, and I'm honored to have had you on this podcast because I think you've been through a lot of things that the majority of people that I know personally have not been through and you've come out on top and I think the lessons that you can teach of being in the face of true fear and true danger um, should trickle down 
to the daily decisions that people make even as far as getting out of their comfort zone if someone is afraid to you know um, communicate or put themselves out there you know there's a lot of people out there that um, let's just as an example talk about business mm. or networking right networking is such a term that I think a lot of people are scared of because either it's douchey they, you know they, they're right. going to be perceived as a douche or they're selling something or they're simply just not comfortable communicating and getting out of their shell they're more introverted right yeah um, and there's this big fear to get out there and put yourself out there but if you really think about it what is the worst thing that's going to happen if when you go to get a coffee you say to the barista how's your day mm -hmm. right or the person that you really want to meet from a networking perspective um, you put yourself out there and say hey I really respect what you do how are you what are you working on I've done some research on you I think this is great like so many people are, are afraid they have fear yeah. of those situations yeah. when in reality yeah, it's just anxiety it's just anxiety and and there are coping mechanisms out there, and, and I think the best coping mechanism is to force yourself into those situations, right? Well, I also think there's an ambiguity to just the term networking, that people are, they're supposed to like go out and talk to people because it'll benefit them. Really what I think networking is, at least to me, and what I've found to benefit me is you're, you're not just like networking to benefit yourself. If you really want to network and, and, and really understand what I think the term means is you go out there and you get to know the people that you're talking to. You don't just network because it's going to net you something. You right. network because a network is a strong bond of people. And you, you're not going to continue that strong bond of people if you're if you're not going and thinking about what they what they need and 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 what they want and what they want to talk about and and you have to it, it goes both ways it's not just like a you know you're taking something through networking so I think what you know because of that ambiguity people are terrified they don't they they're, nobody get really gets a, a clear exp explanation of what networking is so I think that's where the fear comes from I think a less douchey as it were. Uh, way to describe it the words I use uh, because language is everything right uh, the words I use are partnership management you know when it, when it, when everyone when people because I get invited folks like hey this will be a great networking opportunity so I immediately delete that word because I just don't like it it's become such a such a bad word uh, that I just say oh great this is a, this is an excellent opportunity to cultivate partnerships right to cultivate relationships and as Jake said if, if it if you're if why you're doing what you're doing is, uh, let's call it pure or sound, then you'd find, I think, you're more likely to find that the uh, the greater, uh, I'm sorry, that the re rewards will be greater, right? Uh, it, it comes from obviously being selfless and having a clear and, and defined mission, especially if you're keen to help other people. It's, it's people helping people. It's powerful stuff. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say, and, and I think that's a great, it's a great spot to wrap this. I think what you're doing to help people that are in need is amazing and I think through your experience you're going to succeed I think it's going to be a, hard, a, a long road and it's going to take time but you've convinced me and um, I really am happy that you're doing what you're doing because I know it's very it is pure and it will help a lot of people and I'm honestly very happy that you were willing to be on this podcast to discuss these topics because it is just another platform. It's one platform of many out there 
but it will reach people and it will it will educate them and therefore help them and potentially help them help others and that is 1000% been the goal That's it. of this podcast That's it. and what we're trying to do um, and it really is I think out of everybody in this band even like that's our goal is to in, help other people through entertainment right and through help our help each other uh, by bonding and communicating I mean Jake you and I had a, a, communi- a talk this morning where we were communicating very honestly and I'm telling you things that are going on in my life and it's really hard to do that sometimes but it's extremely helpful so that network and that that brotherhood and sisterhood that we can be a part of um, is truly important so if you're listening to this and you took something away or you know if there is one thing to take away it's no matter what you've been through no matter how crazy of a situation how scary of a situation you're in um, I think you got to use every bit of experience to help educate others for the greater good right yeah yeah amen and in fact if anyone's listening that fits that category and doesn't know where to go contact me we'll talk about it so as we wrap um, Brandon we have a we have a Facebook group which you probably heard me talk about before in the other episodes of the podcast but and for those listening if you're not familiar our, our group is, is uh, you can find it at facebook.com slash groups slash chocolate croissants um, it'd be great Brandon if you haven't yet if you can join the group I will because I think there'll be a lot of questions for you and, and we'll, we'll absolutely make a post about it but what I love about the group is it exactly it is exactly what I just described is people helping people mm. sharing their stories sharing their concerns sharing their questions um, and there's a real sense of community there of people that are just trying to do good by others you know um, so if you're listening and you haven't joined yet um, check it out again facebook.com slash group slash chocolate croissants um, if you do have questions for Brandon you can definitely submit them again we'll start a thread um, and Brandon can share as much of his contact information as he'd like um, as we uh, as we close this I just want to thank everybody for listening um, as always we really appreciate your feedback so whether it's in the group or whether it's uh, in iTunes by way of a review or a rating we really appreciate it it helps us to know what we can do better and it helps us to spread the word and help as many people as possible um, and uh, we'll be back shortly with episode 34 soon I'm pretty sure our next guest is going to be think Javier Reyes from Animals as Leaders, which will be a whole different story and a whole different vibe from today, but um, a great vibe nonetheless. So for those of you who've stuck with us this whole time, um, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you for your attention as always. Um, Jake, thanks for being here. Thank you for contributing. Um, Brandon, obviously, thank you for preparing for this and thinking about this and being willing to share. Um, And on behalf- It's been an honor. Good, thank you. It's been an honor to hear your story. Um, and on behalf of myself, Jordan, and Justin, who could not be here because they're not with us on tour right now, um, I just want to say we appreciate you. And in the words of Jordan, bye-bye. Hey, guys. It's Jordan again. Thank you so much for making it this far. Uh, very briefly, I want to show some more love to our sponsor for episode 33, uh, Nata Tattoo. And I just took this from their website. I think it's a very clear way to describe uh, who they are and what they provide uh, to someone like you who may have tattoos or are thinking about getting tattoos in the future. So Nata Tattoo is the premier all-natural, 100% USDA-certified organic tattoo aftercare line. They believe in sustainably resourced ingredients that are cruelty-free and of the highest quality. Both are very important to me personally. 
Their mission is to educate tattoo artists and collectors of the optimal way to preserve and care for their tattoos and skin while knowing the products have been formulated and made responsibly. Their tattoo foaming soap and aftercare lotion will allow your skin to heal beautifully while their tattoo balm will keep your ink looking bright and bold for years to come. And again, not a tattoo have been very cool to you, the listener of Chocolate Croissants, to hook you up with 25% off anything in their online store. The website is nat-a-tat and then the number two dot com. If you didn't get all that, no worries. It's in the episode description uh, in your podcast app or your internet browser or however you're consuming this audio right now. So when you go to the website and you get to check out, type in chocolate in all caps, followed by the numbers 25. That's chocolate25 at checkout. They will hook you up with 25% off any and all of their products. Uh, Lastly, I want to thank our guest for episode 33, Mr. Brandon Bateman. And of course, I want to thank Matt and Jake for holding it down this week with our audio content. That is it. We have made it. It is the end of episode 33. Uh, It has been a very hectic and unique uh, few days, week, uh, even, even month for Justin, myself, and Matt. Uh, We will have episode 34 next week, Monday morning, in your podcast app of choice. Um, As Matt said, we think it might be Javier. Uh, Don't hold us to that. But uh, we will have episode 34. If it's not Javier next week, that'll come sooner than later. Uh, And then in a couple weeks, Matt will be back from tour, and uh, things will kind of hopefully be normal again. Uh, either way, we appreciate you all being part of this journey for us. Uh, life is messy, and, and so are all of the things that we do, but that's really what makes uh, it unique. And I'm going into some philosophical or existential rant that I don't think is necessary right now. Uh, it is Sunday night. I want to watch the Survivor Series, so that is what I'm going to do. I hope you all have a wonderful week. I will see you in the Facebook group soon. Uh, again, thank you. We love you. And bye-bye.